The first station I was on, there were 200 women, and I think I told you 8,000 men, but I thought about it afterwards, and I thought, no, it can't be 8,000, because the most men that would go out on a draft would be 2,000 men on a draft, and there'd be a draft on the station waiting to leave, and one holding, so there would be about 4,000 men. And when they lined them up to put them on the trucks to drive them down to the big troop ships, the parade square was right in front of my window. And they used to line them all up and they had kind of a sing-song thing they did like, um, I had a good job but I left, I left, I, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, it was kind of sad because you looked at them and you thought, there's all, the parade square was just loaded with men. You'd walk across their heads and you'd wonder how many of those are going to come back. You know, what percentage? How many will walk again when they come back? And try not to think about it, you know. But when they started loading up on the state trucks, which would be all lined up along the road, we'd go outside and wave goodbye to them and they'd wave goodbye to us. and. And there was a line of shore policemen between them and us so that they couldn't get at us. <laughs> you know, there was no kissing or hugging or anything like that, just waving and stuff. I never really was very happy about seeing that go, but you just couldn't sit in your barracks and ignore it when the draft was going out. And it was, it was really something. And they're kids. Lots of nights in the winter we had fog and we would have no flights going out. And you could either read or write letters if you if there wasn't any work to do, if you're all caught up to date and everything. We had in the uh, on our shift alone, I don't think any of the other shifts had this, but Mr. Wilde started it. Um, he called it a rumble fund. If you were five minutes late it was five cents. If you were 10 minutes late, it was 10 cents, you know. And if you were three times in a row, five minutes late, it was 15 cents. And that was a lot of money because we were only getting 90 cents a day when we first started. By the time I made corporal, I think I was making about a dollar forty a day and uh, sending half of it home. So, I mean, I really couldn't afford to buy cigarettes or anything. And I was buying war bonds. And the reason I bought war bonds is because it was the only way I could save money. And if I wanted to do something special, like go to New York, which I did one New Year's Eve, um, I cashed in a war bond and I got my $100 and that took me to New York for, <laughs> for New Year's Eve. But um, we'd look for things to do. We played cards, too. And if there was enough money in the Rumble Fund, Mr. Wilde would say to a couple of the girls, um, how about I'll phone Norman's? And that was a the big restaurant. And it was only about two blocks from where we were. And it had white tablecloths and stuff, although I saw some of the worst fights I've ever seen in my life in that place because Merchant Navy would fight regular Navy 
Army would fight Air Force. Air Force would fight the Navy. It was, you know, well, they were drinking, you know? And everybody was under a lot of stress. And, and when they got ashore, the Navy especially, the first thing they did was get as drunk as skunks. And, you know, anyway, um, we'd go, he'd phone ahead and we'd go over and we'd get steak dinners and they'd pile them up in the, not phone cartons, cardboard things, and we'd carry them home and we'd come in on the back fire escape because you were never to leave the building when you were on shift. But Mr. Wilde would let us out the fire escape, which was at the very top on the fourth floor of the building. And then he'd know about what time we'd be coming back. And somebody would be standing there with the door open. We were always terrified coming up those stairs. And we came up one night and there was a rat on the top landing. Oh, and they're big. Wharf rats are big. They're like cats. You know, there were a lot of rats on the street in Halifax. Just, uh, it's a seaport town, you know. Uh, anyway, one night when we had nothing to do, and I don't know where this came from or anything, but we were drinking tea. And I was reading teacup, tea leaves. Just don't even know how it started. It just started as a, a lark, you know. And I hit a couple of things that were right. <clears throat> and I did it two or three times during that week. I think we were fogged in for the whole five days. And I was hitting a lot of stuff that was right, and the girls were saying, gee, is she ever good, you know? I mean, she told me, you know, that I was going to get a letter from somebody I hadn't heard from for a long time, and it was coming, like, almost immediately, and I got it in the very next mail. So, you know, that was really good. Well, one night when I was doing that, I had a, a knock on the window up above us in the, where the officers were and there was only one wing commander on duty <clears throat> excuse me he was there was always only one during the midnight shift unless there was something crucial critical going on and then they, they would be called in the other officers but he knocked on and called me upstairs and he said what are you doing and i said well we're just playing around sir reading tea leaves he said bring me up a cup of tea so I went up to take him a cup of tea, and I was so scared. I was scared of this man anyway. Everybody was. He was a great big man with a flushed face, and he drank a lot on shift. Everybody knew that he drank on shift. And Mr. Wilde was never very happy when, when Commander Dewar was on duty because... Well, it's not very nice to have somebody up there drinking when critical things are going on, but this was a foggy night, so it didn't seem to bother anybody. Um, anyway, couldn't have been much fun to sit up there alone and drink. <laughs> anyway, uh, I took him up a cup of tea with tea leaves in it, and he said to me, sit down. So here I am sitting, you know, up in these big, time scrambled egg hat officers seats and that was pretty interesting and the girls downstairs like their eyes are wide as saucers oh that poor girl what's she gonna tell him you know what can you tell him 
Anyway, he finished his cup of tea and he said, what could he do? And I told him, I'd turn it over, you know, make a wish and all this stuff. And I knew how to tell what wishes were, but I had no idea what his wish was. And I just told him, well, it wasn't a very strong wish that I could see and it wasn't coming true immediately. But I said, there is something here that is very plain to me. And it was, it was so clear I couldn't believe it. I said, there's an open grave and there's three figures beside the grave and they're holding guns up in the air so they're firing a salute. And there are, looks like a huge crowd of people backed away from this area. So somebody very, very important is going to die sometime quite soon and it's going to be very tragic and everybody is going to feel really, really bad about it. And I said, that's covers just about your whole cup, sir. I'm sorry, I can't tell you much else. Well, then he said, we'll see what happens. And right after that, Roosevelt died. I had such a reputation, it was I could have set up shop. <laughs> but he called me up again and he said, how did you do that? And I said, I don't know, sir. I never did it at home and I've never read any books. So I've read books that just, you know, skimmed them, but not studied it or anything. It's just, it's just something that's happening right then. But he was, so good to me after that. He really was. And I came home, came on duty one night, and I had been dancing, of course, right till quarter to 12, and then ran all the way up the hill to get to work on time. And we were issued like two sets of blue uniforms, two khaki colored ones, which we absolutely hated, but they were light and it got very hot in Halifax in the summer, and a trench coat and a beautiful winter coat. Our winter coats really were uh, very nicely fitted. The air women had the nicest uniforms of, of any of the three women's services, I thought. And um, anyway, I was up on the ladder that day, that night, and he knocked on the window and of course, when he would knock on that window, everybody would go you know, and look up to see who he wanted. It was usually Mr. Wilde. Um, and he pointed at me. So I thought, oh, what have I done? You know, and I looked all around and he knocked again and he went. So I went up there and he said, what's the meaning of coming on duty? And he had been drinking. What's the meaning of coming on duty with dirty shoes? They haven't been polished. And I said, well, sir, I was dancing and I didn't have time to go home and clean them up. And my other pair of shoes are at the shoemakers. And you know, they had they provided you in a shoemaker, you took your shoes in to have them half soled or whatever, new heels. And we wore like one inch heeled black Oxfords. And uh, he said, do you mean to tell me that you only are issued two pairs of shoes? 
And I said, yes. And he said, and you could be dancing in that same pair of shoes and then wear them for another eight hours before you get a chance to take them off? And I said, yes, sir. Well, that's wrong. And it was just like within a week, there was a notice on all bulletin boards that all the air women would report to the supplies department for extra shoes. <laughs> all of us. <laughs> Which I thought was, you know, really neat. And the girls on the shift with me knew that's what had, had, had happened. So I made a lot of points that way. I had made a really good friend uh, the first Christmas I was there. Um, they asked you whether you, you got a preference. Do you want leave at Christmas or do you want it at New Year's? And they asked you to please, like this was just on our shift, um, if somebody could make it home at Christmas, would you let them go? And if you couldn't make it home at Christmas, would you, you know, work Christmas and go somewhere else on New Year's? And so we let the, oh, I guess we had two girls from Montreal on our shift, and we had one or two, I think, from um, the Maritimes, and they went home. The girls from Montreal were lucky. They got a flip home. They were flown home and flown back, which I thought was really neat. Mr. Wilde arranged that, and I thought that was great of him. But Aunt Harriet and Uncle John were up in Sydney, and Uncle John was Uncle John was in the Navy. Way too old to be in the Navy, way too old to be a stoker, but it was the only job he could get. So that's where he was, and they lived in a great big house with their four kids. So she wrote me a really nice letter and said, if I'd like to, like I, had, I had five days off, would I like to come up to Sydney for New Year's? And I thought, wasn't that neat, you know? So I asked the girls from the Maritimes that were in barracks, like, how do you get up there and how much is it? And it was cheap as anything to get on a train, but it was an all-night train. You got on the train, you sat up all night, and the seats were wicker. <sighs> anyway, I went up, and I, there was a, I was the only girl on that train on that coach. I never did see any of the other girls. I never wandered around on the train. It was a very small train. It went up to Sydney and then it got on the ferry and it went over to Newfoundland. That was the train it was. Went across the Cancel Strait. But anyway, I was, wasn't very happy when I got on the train because sometimes you're lucky enough to get plush seats. But my coach had wicker. Anyway, I sat there and I was really quite nervous, you know, because the guys were drinking, four guys were drinking at one end and, and they were getting pretty tight and I could tell they were kind of eyeballing me, you know, and she's not bad, you know, and voices are getting louder and louder and one of them came and started to bug me a bit. And uh, I think that a service policeman, a Navy policeman, came through and told him to get back to his own seat. And then a sailor who was sitting by himself, who had a black, a lot of the sailors wore beards, and uh, 
and he was young and tall and very polite and he came over to me and I thought oh god you know now what and he said don't be afraid of me a bit he said but I think these guys are going to bug you again every time they get a chance and so will some of the other guys on the coach he said I promise I won't bug you I'll sit with you though and I'm pretty big <laughs> and I have a little rank on them and I'll make sure they don't bother you and I thought wasn't that nice of him and he was he was a really really nice man and every once in a while his name comes back to me and then it goes off again but he was going to Sydney to visit his folks they lived there for New Year's he didn't ask me out for New Year's Eve but he asked me where I would be and I gave him Aunt Harriet's name and phone number and uh, he phoned me New Year's Day and asked me if I would like to go bowling that night. Oh, and the bowling alleys were just awful. They, were, they weren't hardwood, they were softwood and all pitted and down a basement and everything. But anyway, he came and picked me up and I introduced him to Harriet and John and they once over him. And when I went to get my coat, Aunt Harriet said, he looks very nice. You can bring him in when you come back. John and I will be out, but the boys will be in bed sleeping. But you can bring him in when you come back. And uh, we'll be home about 12 o'clock. So I said, okay, that was nice of her to do that. And I went out with him and he was really Shanks, or his name was something like that. And we came back and she had left us uh, coffee ready to turn on, on the stove sandwiches and you know Christmas cake and all that stuff she was really good to me that way and she liked him and I think I went out with him the next day for a walk or something and then he had to go back and he was going overseas and I knew what ship he was on and I kind of kept track of him and that was New Year's and I had one letter from him between I guess around the end of January and then I got the schmaltziest Valentine's card I've ever got in my whole life about that I was the love of his life and I felt so bad because he was a nice man but he didn't mean anything to me and I didn't answer him or well, what could I do you know I didn't couldn't write him back and say I'm not interested in you that way if you want to stay friends I had a lot of other letters I was writing anyway and I've always felt kind of terribly guilty about that you know I was 18 then and callous about it you know I was having a good time but anyway I, uh, I think he got back all right I never heard anything that had happened to his ship and uh, I always hoped he got back the thing, the thing that turned me off about him is that he was coming back and he was going to be working in the mines. And Sydney was a desperately poor city. It was desperately poor. The houses were grimy and the streets were up and downhill and stony. Um, I couldn't 
believe how people could live in those conditions. I mentioned a lot earlier that Halifax was a terrible city, and it was a terrible, dirty, old, old city with cobblestone streets. And when victory bond time came around, which was once a year, they'd have a big parade with bands and stuff, and we'd march up to Citadel Hill and all the way back down again, um, you know, to convince the citizens <laughs> uh, that they should be buying more bonds to support us. And it was very hard marching on cobblestone streets with streetcar tracks running down them, especially if it had been raining. And I remember our ankles used to be so sore when we got back. It was a, but it was something that, that you did. But the people in Halifax, the women uh, particularly, for some reason took a real liking to the air women. Um, and I had a lot of them tell us that. I guess because so many of us were from far away, a lot of the air women were from the prairies. And uh, they had a big house uh, called Waverly House, and it was on oh, half a block from where I worked. A beautiful old home, and they had turned it into a hostel. And it was very, very cheap to stay in there. And two girls stayed in a room. And they, all floors were shined beautifully. And it was at stained glass windows as you turned to go up. And uh, they had a beautiful, big, central um, waiting room, like a living room, with uh, two or three groupings of love seats and chairs and a fireplace that would be going if it was cold or raining. And they all, across from there in the dining room, they had women working in the kitchen. And you could have like a sandwich and coffee and a dainty for 10 cents, you know. And they were so polite and good to you. But that's where you would have your dates come to meet you at Waverly House. And the lady who ran the house, I can't remember her name either, I should. But I liked her a lot. And she would always come out and once over the guy you were going out with and let you know what she thought. And she lived in the back in a little private area. And two or three times she had me back there for coffee because I was a long way from home. And I had two or three fellows that I went out with more often than others. and. She told me which one she liked the best. I should stick with George. He was really nice and very polite. And he always stood up when she came in the room. <laughs> anyway, um, he got transferred away up north to Lewisburg and I didn't see him after that. He was a gambler anyway and I didn't like that about him, but he was a very nice fellow.